0: Welcome. You're listening to the podcast of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome again, everyone. Um, As Billy said, glad that you're here with us this morning. We are now opening our Bibles and continuing our study through John's Gospel. If you've been with us, you know that we're kind of just moving along through the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn there with me now to John chapter 8. We're going to begin reading in verse 30. As always, our passage is also printed for you there in our order of worship. Just to give you a little bit of a reminder of where we are in John's uh, John's gospel, um, we are still in Jerusalem, the capital city. Uh, Jesus is still there at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember, that is the feast commemorating Israel's journey in the wilderness after God had set them free from slavery. And Jesus, whom John has already told us, is the true word of God, the true glory of God, he is still there teaching in the temple where he belongs. The word of God and the glory of God were meant always to dwell in the temple of God, so it's fitting. And this passage marks the conclusion of Jesus' teaching in the temple at that feast. Once again, a fitting conclusion because just as that feast commemorated the freedom that God had granted his people Israel so long ago, Jesus ends his teaching in the temple here, telling us where true freedom can be found. For our young disciples, our young Christians this morning, I want you to notice in our passage that there's something that makes Abraham really happy. Um, He rejoices in this thing. I want you to notice what it is. What is it that makes Abraham rejoice and happy at the end of our passage? If you're able now to ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word, beginning in John chapter 8, verse 30. Just a fair warning, hard passage this morning. Maybe one of the hardest in the gospel of John, also a long one. We'll read together as John presents to us Jesus, the Son of God. Starting in verse 30 of chapter 8. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. it is not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and that you have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who does seek it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, and yet you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, would you be with us and would you draw out from this passage through your servant, John, that is about the uniqueness of your son and what it means to come to him and become a son. We pray that you would draw this out for us and that you would give us faith, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. No doubt that you've heard maybe one of the most famous lines in this whole passage, the line that the truth will set you free. In fact, that motto remains, um, that little phrase remains one of the mottos of several American universities, including the prestigious John Hopkins University. I mentioned that in the first service and someone came up to me and wanted me to correctly say also that that remains the motto of SMU. So if there's any SMU grads, he was very concerned that I mentioned SMU in that prestigious category. It is a phrase, however, that is very often taken out of its context and turned into something other than what the author intended. It's pithy, um, a great soundbite for higher education. But what did Jesus actually mean when he told us that the truth would set us free? That's what we're going to look at this morning in two parts. We're going to look first at true freedom, uh, how Jesus describes it. What is true freedom in the first place? How should we think about it? And then, second, Where does it come from? That is, how do we experience true freedom? So let's take those in order. First, true freedom, what is it? And just to set the scene for us this morning, you'll notice in verses 30 through 31, this is another complicated part of the passage. The audience that Jesus is speaking with, John tells us, is Jews who believed in him and yet who clearly show us that they're not really his followers. They prove that throughout the passage. And this just continues a category in John's gospel in which people show an attachment to Jesus or even an affinity for Jesus, even following him to some extent and yet failing really to embrace him as God's true son. So Jesus' audience here on this occasion is seemingly orthodox, um, churched people who appear to know the right answers, but yet their hearts are far from the true answer, who is Jesus Christ himself. And more on that later. The first thing I want to point out from our passage this morning is where Jesus and his audience actually agree. And what they agree on is what true freedom really is. That is what it means for us to experience or to be free. And that is clearly not the result of political or even circumstantial freedom from authorities above us. Notice what the Jews say to Jesus in verse 33. We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. That's a crazy statement if you know the history of Israel. There was hardly a major power in Israel's history at this point that had not held them captive. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Persia, Rome, Israel had been under the authority of all of them. So how can they say here that they've never been enslaved to anyone? Well, if you trace the dialogue in the passage, which is a long dialogue, these Jews rightly believe that they were free because they were, in fact, God's children. In their case, through their descent from Abraham. And that's the big argument here. And what it means is this, that that being a child of God, whether you are male or female, whether you are poor or rich, whether you are circumstantially captive— or a king, they saw that as true freedom because they rightly believed that only God alone is free. And if we want to talk about freedom as truly having no other authority above us, then there is only one being and one being alone that that applies to. It applies to God. And so human freedom would only always come derivatively from a relationship with him. And not just any relationship, But it would look like this, it would look like being his son, an heir in his household to all the things that he owns, which explains critically in this passage what Jesus means by bondage and real slavery. To understand that, we need to follow Jesus back to the Garden of Eden as he points us to there in verse 44. So if you turn there, look there, in verse 44, you'll notice that Jesus describes slavery Where his audience finds themselves as belonging to not God's household, but another household, another authority, another father, the devil. If you remember the story back in Genesis 3, you'll remember that in the garden, the devil persuaded our first parents, that is Adam and Eve, that freedom consisted in actually leaving God's fatherhood. His authority so that they might become their own gods. That is to say that by rejecting the word of God, if you remember how the temptation went, the devil said, did God really say? By rejecting that word, you could have freedom all to yourself. You can go your own way. You can obey no one else but your own desires and inclinations. You can do your own thing, and that is the truth that will set you free. And it's here that Jesus calls that the original lie, where from the beginning, the devil, as the father of lies, presented sin as freedom and liberty as rejecting the goodness of God's authority. Now you'll no doubt recognize that temptation still around that fruit on offer to us today in our world. What is it that the world says about freedom? The world's truth goes something like this, if you can keep anything from hindering you in the development of your own authenticity and individuality and identity and authority, if you can really express yourself, if you can be true to yourself, if you can find yourself, if you can really love yourself, then you'll be free. You can serve, now there's there's actually a moral imperative, you must serve in the place of God yourself as the highest authority and source of your freedom. But if we can be honest for a moment this morning, knowing yourself the way I bet you know yourself, do you really think that your own heart and your own mind and your own will are stable enough are trustworthy enough, are good enough to play the role of God in your life. Because I doubt that anyone here really believes in themselves that much or thinks that highly of themselves. C.S. Lewis lays out this temptation well in a book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you have heard of that book. It's a fictional account of a seasoned demon named Screwtape trying to teach his younger demon apprentice named Wormwood how best to tempt and to destroy his human subjects. This is what Screwtape says at one point to Wormwood. He says, one must face the fact that all the talk about God's love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not mere propaganda, it's an appalling truth. God really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be like his own with their wills freely, that is, joyfully conforming to his. Then he says this. is the demon talking, remember. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who will finally become sons. That's the story of the world. He wants to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and his freedom flows over. And what Lewis describes there is what Jesus says in verse 34 the awful reality of sin is that sin will make you a slave. Which means this sin never makes you more human, it always makes you less human. And what always happens is that the self or the heart that you're trying so hard to honor and to expand and to make whole or to heal, that self is actually being destroyed. Lewis says it's being devoured. And here is at bottom why that's the case. Each one of you where you sit this morning were not made in the image of yourself. You were made, and there is no higher compliment the Bible gives you than this. There is no better reason to understand your own dignity and value than to say this. You were made in the image of God, whose goal for you, including his authority over you, is to be a son who in miniature looks like him in true freedom. Now, most of you probably know the story of the prodigal son in Luke's gospel. You know the story. It's the story of the younger son leaving home with the wealth of the father, the gifts of the father, the resources of the father, and he's acting as if his father were dead. And so now in the story, he has, he has gotten what he wanted. He is finally his own man, free to be himself. If you know the story, where does it lead him? He squanders everything. He sells himself to a master in a far country, which in that story represents the devil. And then he bottoms out, rolling around with the pigs in the mud, envying them, clearly now less human, and hoping for a way to return to his father's authority, not as a son, but as a what? A slave. Yet what happens in the story? father sees him on the horizon, does not wait for him to come. He runs toward him with compassion. If you remember, he embraces him. He kisses him. He celebrates him. And the father refuses to receive him back as a slave, only as a son, where once again, all that the father has belongs to him. The father does not devour him. Sin does that. The father, as Lewis writes, turns a servant back into a son. And that is freedom. Listen to me, in this passage, in that, the Jews and Jesus completely agree. Where they disagree is where that freedom is actually found. You have to be a son. How do we become sons? If you notice in the passage, the Jews thought it was enough to have the right lineage, that is to be born into the right family. In this case, they could trace their family line back to Abraham. And Abraham, no doubt, had a special relationship with God, but look at what Jesus says in verse 39. In verse 39, he says this, if, if you were Abraham's children, his true children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. What Jesus is saying there is that it's not your DNA that reveals your lineage, It's what you do. And so what works? What did Abraham do that became the deciding factor in his sonship before God? Look at how Jesus concludes this exchange. This is the real bomb he sets off, beginning in verse 56. Your father Abraham, imagine listening to this for the first time. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And what Jesus says here is truly remarkable. He says this, that when Abraham believed in God's promise, if you remember, that was a promise to give him a son. When Abraham believed in that promise, that God would give him a son that would be the bearer of God's blessings to the whole world, whom did Abraham get? He got Isaac. Who did Abraham see in the face of Isaac? Isaac. He saw Jesus, not literally, but what Jesus says here is that Abraham rejoiced because in Isaac, Abraham saw God's true son from afar. In Isaac, Abraham saw the day of the Lord, and he knew that day didn't belong to his son Isaac. It belonged to a greater son, Jesus. And so Abraham on that day loved Jesus. And he believed in Jesus, and he rejoiced in Jesus, and that's how Abraham became a son. And the works that the Jews are not doing, the works that their father Abraham did are the works of now seeing the day of Jesus, the day of the Lord, the great day of the I Am who is right there before them, and they are failing to rejoice in it and love the Son who is presenting himself to them in the flesh. How do we get to be sons? Guys, there's only one way. We say this pretty much every week. I hope we never stop saying it. There is only one way. It's the same way for you as it was for Abraham. Only the son, only Jesus can make you a son and set you free. In the story of the prodigal, it is Jesus sent by the father who comes running to us on the horizon of the far country It is the Father through Jesus who embraces us, who forgives us, who kisses us, who celebrates us, who reclaims us as the heirs we were always meant to be. So how do we live in that? How do we enjoy that? How do we embrace that? How do we live in that freedom? Well, turn back with me all the way to the beginning to verse 31, where Jesus starts this way. He says, if you abide in my word, That word abide is going to be important increasingly in John's gospel. It really just means make your home. If you make your home in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And friends, this is the moment as a pastor, as your pastor, that I get to tell you that you have to make your home or abide in God's word. And if you want to get more practical than that, that means that we have to read God's word. We have to meditate on God's word. We have to listen to God's word from teachers and preachers and we have to study it in fellowship together with friends and family. You have to take God's word into your heart and into your mind and you have to obey it in all things. And listen to me, even when it says hard things, I mean, remember these Jews loved Jesus until they heard something that was hard for them to hear. You'll always hear hard things from him. You have to make the word of God the central fact of your life. It has to find room on your calendar. It has to find room in how you process wisdom about your life. It has to find room in your relationships. The Apostle Paul says, let God's word dwell in you richly. I'm sure you can imagine what that might mean in your life. But to know freedom and to live in that freedom, to experience it means to have to abide in God's word. Now here's the twist. We have a pretty good sense that Jesus' audience was doing all of those things. They knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They meditated on it, memorized it. They knew the Old Testament that is better likely than any of us ever will. And so what gives? Listen to what Jesus says, how he starts that conversation again. He says, if you abide, in my word and that's the key you know we've already seen this in earlier conversations in john when it came to the law of moses and now we get this in a conversation about the promise of abraham and you could divide the whole of the old testament between those two things the law and the promise and what we're seeing here is that god's word must become christ's word if it is to be a means of grace and a means of freedom for us. Here's an example from our passage. When these Jews thought about the seed of Abraham, when they thought about the true son of Abraham, who did they imagine that to be? Themselves. When they thought about obedience to the law of Moses, whose obedience did they trust in? Their own. The Bible, from Revelation back to Genesis and from Genesis forward to Revelation, is always first about Jesus, not about you. And if you read God's word as if you are the primary actor or primary fulfillment, like this audience did, not only will you miss Jesus, the true word, but obedience to you will always feel like legalism. It will always feel like you are a servant trying in your own power to become a son, trying to keep God's favor. But If you read this as the word of the true son, if you read God's word through the true son, the word become flesh, then this word will always be a declaration of and description of your liberty. James says, That the law of God is perfect liberty. That can only be true if you've been made into a son and set free in the Father's house. Freedom is always living with the Father, under the Father's roof, through the Son, and abiding in his word from the Spirit as God makes you into a miniature version of himself. That is the truth that will set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for your word to us this morning. We pray, oh Lord, we do pray that you would help us to see and trust and believe and entrust ourselves to Jesus so that all the means you've given us through him are truly means of grace. Lord, would you you teach us how to live as firstborn sons? As we've already repeated in our catechism, would you help us to know all the liberties and privileges that we have as your children? Would you help us to reckon you often as our Father in prayer, in obedience, in love, and in all of life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more about Covenant, please visit covenantprez.com.